Effectively measuring brand lift, disruption to and by publishers in recent years, the need to deliver the right content to engaged audiences. The list of topics dominating the industry is a diverse one. Thankfully, this week's guest on the Life in Digital podcast is perfectly placed to tackle these topics and more. In our latest episode, Ed Steer is joined by industry heavyweight Tom Jennon, who's currently working as Brand Metrics Chief Revenue Officer, but who's also an experienced advisor and director for a multitude of technology and media businesses globally. We're lucky enough to have Tom break down his 20 plus years in the industry as he covers the journey which has taken him to his current role and the work and he and the Brand Metric team are doing. I hope you'll enjoy. Welcome to the Life in Digital podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined today by Tom Jennon, uh, industry veteran. Um, Tom's worked at some amazing companies, particularly some really cool startups. I remember Admel so well, um, the SSP from um, you know 10, 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, so Tom, I really appreciate you coming on today. It'd be good to hear from you. Yeah, a bit, of, a bit about your background. Um, yeah, so over, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Great to be here. I um, yeah, I've been uh, I've been in ad tech for for twenty years, and it's been um, I spent the first kind of half of that in in New York City, and I was working with uh, as as kind of in the marketing leadership for companies like iBlaster and Falk and and others, and and then moved to London in two thousand nine to launch AdMels over in Europe, and. You know, that was my first sales job so that was that was quite an, an introduction and i felt you know obviously it was it was the first programmatic for publishers it was the first private marketplaces globally uh were run through admin was it was active admin classified itself as an ssp at the time was the trade supply side platform no it wasn't it wasn't uh it wasn't ssps or supply side platforms we were yield management at the time we were yield optimizers and in the first instance before it was programmatic there was it was actually just kind of bringing all the different networks together and making the right decisions rather than a waterfall where uh you know kind of the some bad impressions were taken at the end actually it was all kind of like let's find the right buyer for the right impression and it was it worked amazingly well and we weren't the only yield optimizers out there pubmatic and rubicon uh, yeah. were, were out there as well but but what we did that was that was different was we created the first real-time bidding for publishers and so that allowed us to kind of get a get a kind of a lead showing showing leadership in the market um, and that's what I think ultimately got the attention of, uh, of, of Google and um, why they acquired us in 2011. Yeah. When you came across to London in 2009, was the plan to remain? Was it like, a, how long will I be in the UK for? What was the kind of... Yeah. The... Yeah, no, the plan was definitely to remain. I was getting married. And so, um, and, and, you know, I think for, I think that's where, I think Ben uh, Barokas, who's uh, obviously a good friend, founder of, of, of Admel, really liked Europe at the time. And even though Michael Barrett was like, well, I think he had been burned by, uh, by Europe before when he was uh, at Fox. Um, I think they were kind of, you know, weren't sure whether it was the right time. I think Ben was like really keen to try and make, um, make it more of a global mark. And so we all kind of took a chance um, to see if we could get something started. So actually I was first, uh, as far as yield optimizers, first in, in the UK market. Um, but you know, it took some time because everybody had to make this adjustment to understand what what it is we were trying to do, 
um, trying to make uh, you know good relationships with with networks at the same time and and buyers, but also with obviously publishers and um, so it was all kind of all to play for and it was all kind of those early days of programmatic, which um, we didn't know what we were doing at the time in the sense of um, you know creating the brand new infrastructure for uh, for the world and obviously there was Fnexus and and others that were trying to do some things on the buy side. So the ecosystem was growing um, and it was really just a tremendously exciting time. And, and you've always been involved with startups and now you've had the big companies too, like, like Google. What's been, the, uh, what's been the startup allure for you over the, over the years? Well, I think for me, I'm a, I, I like to do a lot of different things. I'm a, I'm a generalist and I also get bored easily. So I need to kind of keep things moving and keep my hands in uh, in a lot of different things. And when you're a startup, you, there's, there's always so much more to do than you can do at any particular moment. Um, so that was good. And also there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of strategy to be considering at the time. When, when there's so much opportunity, you've got to make some, some, some right decisions. And I think for me, I, I've always been attracted to working with people who are a lot smarter than me and tech is the way to do that. And um, I think in ad tech, uh, you, you just find a lot of those people. So, so that was great. Coming over to Google was was exciting, but um, but also I think we all came in from Admel because we had been in it for a while. Came in with a sense of purpose, it's a real sense of mission to try and try and bring Google into the world of premium publishers. In the sense that you know we know that programmatic can work for premium. Uh, we just got to make sure that the whole business was aligned on what um, what premium publishers wanted, what um, what premium media really meant, and how to transact it. But that's how it works at, at, at big companies. You, you're not actually selling so much as you are internally, working internally to try and align all of the pipes and make sure the hundreds of millions are flowing. And uh, you know, once that was done, I felt kind of like my, my job was kind of done. And even though there was a reorg and there's opportunities, uh, it, feels, it felt to me like actually, let's go out and maybe I can just go out and solve some more problems somewhere else. Yeah, and how to identify the problems you want to solve being very mission-led. What's the, yeah, how do you go through that, that, that process? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's interesting because sales is, um, uh, sales is ultimately, um, I think Brian Morrissey said it on Twitter last week, um, sales is really about solving problems. And the best salespeople are those who can kind of get in deep with customers and prospects, understand what it is that they really need. And, and bring them and identify solutions and bring them solutions that, that really, um, that solve their problems in a really cohesive way. So I get really attracted to that. I, I, I think I kind of work by, by understanding the customers, understanding who it is you're, you're, you're essentially selling to, you, you can go out there and find solutions that, that make sense for them. And that's when everybody's happy, right? You don't, you don't, um, you don't ever wanna be the guy showing up on the door and saying, Right, I've got something that you've already got uh, one of, but mine's better. You know, it's, just, it's a really hard conversation to have. It's a tough gig, yeah, for sure, for sure. And then you, you made the decision um, a few years ago as you sort of um, you know, launched other initiatives, Women Present. I know there are some really interesting things around sustainability journalism, which I'm excited to talk about um, later on to kind of move from leadership roles in startups on a permanent basis to advisory NED and consulting what, 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 what made you decide to look at that, that that kind of that kind of route well you know when, once you're once you're a bit older and you kind of realize that they're there you, you know what you want out of a career you know what you want out of a job and out of uh, out of you know what you're doing when you're working with people 
you kind of realize there's a, the perfect job is out there. You just may have to create it yourself or, or somebody already has it. So you're going to have to buy yourself some time until you find the right thing. And I think at first it started off as kind of buy, buying some time, but, but actually it's, you get really attracted to solving the problems that you see out in the market. So, you know, with Women Present, it's looking at needing to, looking at the, the problem of diversity on event panels and speaking opportunities and realizing that actually you should build a platform for that. Um, so, you know, we, me and Katie Jones and others kind of came together to try and help make some of that happen. And, and at the same time, you look around and you see other problems within ad tech that need to get solved as well. And I think, getting excited about that. You also find other people who are also excited about the same, about the same problems. There's a, there's a Japanese term called ikigai, which is all about having your, uh, being able to find the right reason for being. And that's a combination of doing what you love, but also doing what you're good at, and doing what you can be paid for, but also doing what the world needs or what the community needs. And if you can find that right combination of what's in the middle, then you've, you've found a good, then you're gonna find that ultimate satisfaction. I can't say I've found ultimate satisfaction, but you definitely can find a better combination when you can mix and match pieces. Um, and fortunately, I think I'm at a point where I've, I'm working with, uh, with companies that I'm really excited about, solving problems that I think are really important with people that I like, and then also you know, pays the bills. So I think that's, it's in a good place. Yeah, very much, very much agree with that. It's interesting. What, what was the Japanese term? Sorry, Tom, I want to write that down before I forget it. It's called, it's called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And it's so important, I think, at the early stages of, people career, of people's careers, it's very hard to know, like, am I taking the right path? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I think with experience, you just get that really amazing thing where you learn what you love and what your passion projects are and what your strengths are. I was just thinking how I can use that to support the younger people at Sphere on a um, sense of like purpose and, and yeah, really connecting with, connecting with work. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And so one of the projects you've been led into is, 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 um, is brand metrics. So how, how did brand metrics uh, come about? Well, you know, I spend, uh, I've spent a lot of time up in the Nordics and um, I really uh, love spending time up in, in Sweden and, and Denmark and Norway. And, so, and a lot of my clients are actually up there where they're creating amazing tech, but they're in yeah. small markets and need to find access to larger markets. And that's something that I'm, I'm pretty good at. So at one point I met uh, you know, the guys at Brand Metrics had, um, had developed a relationship with, uh, with Netric where I'm on the board and I'd been speaking at a IAB Sweden event. And I met them and, I, and they said that they actually had solved the, um, the, the, the ability to create, uh, to, to, to measure brand lift, campaign brand lift on unlimited campaigns for publishers. And I said, actually I've been around for 20 years and I've not seen a solution like that. I'm not sure that it, you're, you're, you're right about that. <laughs> you, you can't be. But then after digging into it and realizing they were working with Shipstead and, and Sanama and other kind of large publishers, it was clear that they were, they were getting it right. And I really felt that this needed to, you know, honestly, it needed to be brought to other media companies and publishers because fundamentally, if you are charging a premium for your product, you've got to defend that premium. You've got to provide data so that the buyers can feel good about the investment they're making and frankly, invest more, right? Really accelerate that investment. And when you've got Facebook and YouTube and, and others, the big platforms who are providing brand lift measurement at scale for a very low threshold price, then uh, you need to be able to do that in order to compete. 
I was talking with um, with someone at Group M in, in the Netherlands um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and they said, you know, publishers are think they're doing really well with 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 brand um, with brand campaigns because they're getting more investment now than they used to, but. The reality is that they don't know exactly the torrent of investment that's going to the big platforms because they're able to measure it. So what we really just need are for publishers and broadcasters and networks to be able to measure their campaigns. And if they do, we'll send them a lot more money. So how does um, brand measure the brand? What's the kind of, yeah, what's the kind of premise behind the tech? Yeah, it, I think it's it, it really comes down to, to being able to do, to measure brand lift taking a, a look at it and saying, how do we, how do we take this thing that has been, that, that people are measuring individual uh, research projects, right? Take, take campaigns, campaign measurement out of a, a research project standpoint and try to strip it down to what we think is the most repeatable, comparable, consistent um, metrics, and then get those every time. If we can just simplify it and get that simplified metric every time, then actually we'll be able to uh, create some insights that people haven't been able to see. More importantly, we'll be able to scale it. And yeah. so it comes down to three basic buckets of efficiency. One is bringing it down to that single question, which isn't unusual, but doing it in a repeatable, consistent way. And then taking a, an algorithmic approach to producing brand lift measurement, which is not an uncommon thing. Everybody knows how regression analysis works but we've been modifying this algorithm for years and actually got it down to where it can work incredibly efficiently. Um, and then thirdly, automating the heck out of it, just making sure that, that any business can, any publisher business can take this. It's not gonna take their resources, you know, people resources to get it done. They'll be able to do it at scale without, you know, kind of breaking the bank or consuming too much media or pissing off customers. So in the end, you have uh, an incredibly efficient system that actually um, that that actually is presents metrics that clients really value and like to value every time. I should also mention Adnami, which is um, uh, yeah, I think you you've already had that that kind of session. But um, when you think about kind of those those uh, technology platforms that are solving a problem, it's not one of those. It's not a problem that is. It, 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 it's kind of an interesting tech platform in that it is solving a problem that as, as from, there's still, I guess the, the thing about Adnami is that there is, um, there's still opportunity in programmatic. You know, it's one of those situations where programmatic was built actually to disrupt um, inefficiency, to try to bring more efficiency and bring more scale to, um, to media transactions. And that's what Adnami is doing. Um, and I think when you think about how how it solves problems for buyers being able and also for publishers being able to bring efficiency on both sides and 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 adapting what what previously was quite a manual process into something that is data led and automated, um, it's uh, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, amazing. I think uh, the the publishing world has been so disruptive and continues to be. Um, what, what, what do you think are the things that um, publishers and the, you know, and, and the publishing industry needs to do to make uh, publisher business models sustainable and to really thrive um, in, in, in the future? Yeah, that's a great question because everybody's looking for that answer and for everybody, the answer is going to be slightly different. But yeah. you know, when, you look at, when you look at the most successful publishers in the world, they have diversified revenue sources. 
um, you know, very few publishers right now are, are putting all of their uh, all of their hopes and dreams on advertising alone. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the big platforms have taken a lot of the value out of the middle there. So, you know, when when publishers look at you know building a business on advertising alone, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't work. So, subscriptions are, are obviously a great opportunity, and some publishers are over-indexing on subscriptions, in my opinion. But you know, that is a way to get some repeatable business. And and honestly, if you're not paying attention to it, sometimes you have to organize the whole business around it just to focus on it enough and, and solve for it. So when you've got subscriptions and you've got advertising, you also need e-commerce as well. And, and are there publishers out there who've got like a genuine DC proposition? I know there's like wine clubs and things, but like a real e-commerce. Well, and- I mean, I think you can look at e-commerce in a number of ways, but if you say that you, you, you don't see e-commerce, it's because you haven't searched on a product recently. But when you search on, I don't know, you know, vacuum cleaners or Hoover's, you're going to see results coming back usually from publishers and they're going to be might be from future publishing or Ziff Davis or a big yeah. newspaper like uh, obviously the independent has uh, has a massive and growing e-commerce business and they're really good at SEO which is half the battle uh, yeah. but then you see some publishers really you know doing that well and they're it's a combination of having a strong content business creating content with the idea that there will be some links in there just so that it's it's, it's written and constructed properly to be SEO'd, but, but then also being able to connect to the uh, con- connect to buyers and affiliate buyers. And it sounds kind of, you know, mid 2000s, you know, um, kind of cheap as chips kind of uh, publishing yeah. business. It's a, it's, a, it's a vast and growing business. E-commerce is now one of those areas you just can't avoid. If you're a publisher, you've got to think about it and make sure that you can align that with all the rest of the things that you're doing. So the diverse business models important with a combination of you know, display revenue, e-commerce, um, subscriptions. What, what, what about the role of creativity? There's so much post-cookie chat at the moment and the role of creativity in advertising. Um, what, what sort of impact do you think that will have on publishers' businesses in a, you know, in, a, in a programmatically enabled world, but where there's more kind of you know, rich, engaging, creative at the, at the heart of it? Well, publishers are the original creators. They are they have audiences simply because they're creating amazing content that people connect with. So being able to do that for clients and building branded content businesses is incredibly important. And some of them do it really well. But um, but also being able to uh, create strong content for um, for for clients. Um, you know, if you do it right, and, and I can say this having um, spent a lot of time with Polar and other branded content businesses, um, you're going to do really well for, for users, have great user experiences, um, but also create good things for, for clients. Being able to recognize that, I think publishers, some of them went all the way down that line. You can't have your entire business built around branded content these days. Um, because that that ends up be, becoming a traffic driving exercise, and you spend a lot of money with Facebook trying to drive traffic to those to those articles if you're not careful. So, um, you know, I think video is is incredibly important for for publishers. They need to be spending a lot more uh, time to create amazing video, but um, but they are as well. Again, they they they've learned it. They know how to make video work. I think trying not to get too trying to not go down necessarily the entire social road and now I'm a TikTok creator genius and you know not everybody can do that so you've got to concentrate on the things that your audience is going to be most likely to to enjoy first and and then create some partnerships that can help you extend that 
And it feels like it's a, an exciting time in ad tech at the moment with new tech uh, emerging all the time. There was some tough periods, you know, GDPR was a, was a, was a knock and um, like brand safety has been, been some tough periods. Yeah, it's been, it, it does, it feels like, yeah, really, really sense that. And we um, engage with our clients all the time. We see the launches and uh, the IPOs and it, it's awesome. So what do you think is the direction of travel uh, over the next well, People invest in change. And, and I think, you know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like nothing was going to change, right? Programmatic was, was essentially ta had taken over. Everything had kind of ossified. The big players were going to stay that way. And now with the cookies going away, we know that we've got to throw all of that, all the assumptions out the window. We've got to create some, some new infrastructure uh, that, that people want. Not, not everybody wants to spend all their money with Google and Facebook. You talk to the big... Yeah big agency holding companies, and they will all say the same thing. They're strong partners of ours. We really like them, but we do need a healthy ecosystem out there. And so I think that there's, there are a lot of people that, um, that, that we all know well who are out there trying to create new identity solutions and new data uh, management solutions. Um, and, and, and that's just the beginning. Because once you've done that, once you've kind of taken that, taken that down a few different um, angles and Luma Partners has come out with their with their 2021 um, um, kind of forward-looking presentation. You can see that they've already identified a number of different that's a good one, Luma Partners. Yeah, yeah, a number of different ways in which people are going to solve identity and and targeting, and it's not going to just be one solution. So that means that if you are an investor, there's a number of interesting directions you can go to place bets. But also, if you are working in any other business you are also trying to place bets on how to adapt your own systems, measurement, effectiveness, like I'm talking about brand metrics, which can operate in a cookie-less and pixel-less environment, um, different ways in which you can um, uh, address to solve the problems and continue to transact. Um, everybody's going to have to, um, everybody's gonna have to find a way to do that. So, so that means that every business has to adapt. Every business needs more investment, but also there are some, some, some big goals to, um, to be achieved and um, you know, hopefully some more big exits. And, and sustainable journalism, um, we're talking so much about creating audiences and creating communities and at the heart of that is really good trusted content and trusted journalism and it's so, so important to have that. So um, I know you're involved with a, 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 a business who were all kind of do with sustainable journalism. Can you tell me, tell me a bit about that? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I got involved with, uh, with a group called United for News, which was a, a joint venture between the World Economic Forum and, and an NGO called Internews, which a lot of, not a lot of people have heard of, but they're, they're a large, um, huge budget global entity that's actually trying to support journalism and, and news and the, basically the, the tra transfer of information um, and transparency. Um, globally, and they do this in, in war zones, they do this in very difficult environments, but also um, everywhere where, where you know, news and, and, and journalism needs to be supported. Yeah. And so I think looking at it, it was very clear that, um, that the, the world wasn't really set up to support journalism. You see there's a huge amount of the brand safety system. Certainly a couple of years ago, people were not paying close enough attention to how the brand safety systems were breaking news. Um, they were making it really difficult to, to again, have, have advertising fund the journalism. And you can see that, um, you know, obviously with local news, local newspapers, their, their core business model relied a lot on classifieds. You know, eBay and, and other, uh, and Gumtree and, and kind of other sites have taken over classifieds. That's not coming back, right? 
so that's fine. But that 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 was a big way of funding news, really. So there needs there needs to be a lot more attention paid to how to create better business models and more supportive um, funding mechanisms for for journalism and for news. And so I think the world has moved along. I think some of the big platforms are making some efforts. I mean, I personally spend a lot of my time with media companies in part because I like the mission. I think it's really important to create strong content. Um, I enjoy content on the internet, but I also want it to be trusted. Um, and so working with big news companies that, um, that I believe in makes sense. But I think local, local journalism is, is actually, I think right now, quite a growth area. You saw JPI Media just got sold. Um, you see companies like Archant and others investing huge amounts in there uh, to kind of make adjustments and, and grow. So I think you feel like certainly in the UK and I think globally, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's still a lot more innovation to happen. Um, we just need to make sure that we're continuing to support them. What what is happening? Because I don't see much. To what is happening around that? Um, you know, to, an education process that to have quality journalism and to have a quality internet, it needs to be paid for. Like, do you think there's more? I guess I'm saying it's because I think there's more to done to educate, particularly like um, just young people who've grown up in a world where there's only the internet. Um, subscriptions are educating people better than anyone else could do it. Right? I, think, I think you talk about young people. It's not young people. Young people are used to paying for stuff, actually. They're used to paying for Minecraft. They're then used to paying for their streaming gaming um, services. They're used to, they know that Netflix costs money. They know that Amazon costs money. They know that Disney Plus costs money. Um, they know all this stuff is costing money. The question is really, what are they willing to pay for? And I think studies recently, people are starting to figure out, trying to run surveys and research to figure out how many subscription accounts will somebody pay for? How much money are people going to allocate to this? And they are certainly seeing that there are a few people who have a, who have a few different news subscriptions, but most people don't. And if they do, if they do have multiple subscriptions across a lot of different services, they're going to they're going to gravitate towards entertainment more so than they're gravitating towards news. And if they if it comes down if it comes down to one and have one subscription, most often that subscription is entertainment, i.e. Netflix, rather than um, uh, rather than a new subscription. So I think in terms of people are people are going to deal with the reality that's in front of them. People will try to gravitate towards um, kind of free ad supported um, services where they can. Unfortunately, today, when it comes to news, a lot of the highest quality news and journalism um, is actually going under, going behind paywalls. And so, if I want to, if I want to read the New York Times or 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 the Times or the FT or you know most of the others, Telegraph, you're gonna you're gonna be paying after just a couple of articles, and even others like Business Insider and others, they're behind paywalls now. Um, mm -hmm. And when you're not behind a paywall, there's there's still a degrading of service that makes it, you know, you know, you got to start thinking about what are my what are my choices, and where 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 would I rather spend my time and energy, um, and and you know, by degrading of services, it might be always asking for a donation, or it might be just overloading the UI the UI and the screens in front of me with all the ads and things are moving around all the time. So I think where those experiences are, are less intrusive and less annoying, but also still free, people will spend time with them. Um, 
unfortunately that ends up being kind of the fringe <laughs> the, the fringe viral generated um, uh, kind of um, publications and that seems to be happening more and more so I'm hoping things will change I'm hoping that there will be a point at which and maybe it will require some incentives from government to actually mm -hmm. say we want to fund news we want to make it possible for people to have more free accounts or to be a certain amount of, of journalism that that we want to fund as a as a as a as a society so that it actually can be free. There's clearly lots of public money. I thought perhaps to save or to, to help news organizations, governments just say we'll, we'll pick up the wage bill for your journalists. Because it, it's you know, in relative terms it's not a massive wage bill. <laughs> yeah, you just talk to any journalist, they'll tell you the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's just not the direction of travel. I mean, look what's happening with the BBC, which is, you know, the highlight of, of, our, of our journalistic society, and it's publicly funded, and yet people, there's, it's constantly under attack. And, and you see they're now, they're now folding in um, um, BBC4, that's going to become an archive channel. Um, you know, it's not going in the right direction. So they say governments would like to fund journalism, but they don't want to necessarily fund journalism that challenges what they're doing. So no, what they what they want to fund is propaganda, and so yeah. they're more than happy to do that. And you saw Donald Trump funding propaganda constantly. He's he's spending his time and energy supporting, um, you know, Fox News, which is fine, but then then attacking the ones that disagree with him, and that yeah. is essentially, you know, funding propaganda. So I feel like. You know, we need to. We need to. Yeah, there needs to be a correction. The governments have been asked to fund journalism to help publish. Yeah, yeah. No, it happens. It happens all the time. Um, and uh, you know, Francis Dame Francis Cancross uh, um, pulled a lot of industry experts together um, a couple of years ago and um, had interviews with a number of people. Um, and we were able to provide some some insight into her and that into her uh, into her um, report, which then came back and said, actually, we should be funding more of this and we need to create a regulatory environment that supports responsible journalism. And here are some things that need to be done. Um, but you don't see government doing that because it costs money. And going off uh, off journalism is in, in, in the US, kind of the big um, like TV based news networks. And there's going to be some new um, like 24 seven news uh, networks you're launching in the UK as well. What do you make of those sorts of channels and that, that kind of like, I don't know, the, the Piers Morgan presenters out there who, where the presenter becomes the news, that, that seems like a real... Yeah, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a golden age for content creation, no matter how you look at it. People are home, they're, they're leaning back and, and paying a lot of attention to content that they can get over a screen. So the more content you create there, you're going to find buyers for that. You're going to find an audience for it. Um, I would hope that over time we can get away from... Uh, we can get away from the viral approach to content. I think um, anytime you lie on online or you lie uh, in, a, in a social media context, it tends to get shared quite a lot because yeah. some people really want to believe those lies. And if they're believing it, they're going to get it out there as, as much as possible. So I think there is um, there's a strong case for regulation um, yeah. to, to come into play, especially not just with new ones. I don't care about any new new content that's out there. I think creativity is important, um, but I think you do need to have, uh, you do need to have um, regulation and you also need regulation on the big platforms who themselves should be and could be spending a lot more energy to, um, to cut down the sources of disinformation when they see them. Everybody knew Donald Trump was lying. I mean, it was one, part of his brand that he was lying. So why did, 
was he allowed to say all the things that he said um, and then essentially foment rebellion in the US. It, it, you didn't realize maybe that it was going to come to that, but you kind of needed to be blind to see that it wasn't going to come to that because it, and then it did. So yeah. maybe that was the wake up call everybody needed. And uh, when, when you're speaking to publishers, and I'm, I know you speak to publishers all the time, what, 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 what are the, um, the, 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 the real challenges that you feel they're check, uh, facing you know, in, in, in today's world? What, what are the real, yeah, the, the, the biggest challenges? Yeah, I think I think you get to a certain point as a as a business, and you've got legacy costs, not unlike an airline. <laughs> you know, you've yeah. got legacy costs, you've got debt, you've got a lot of things going on, and you you struggle with exactly how am I going to make a profit out of this? And different companies have different levels of profit that they require and different outcomes that they're looking to get. So I think you know right now they've got to figure out. Should I should I go down the consolidation route? Should I go down the, the route of a future, for example, and consolidate and pull in other businesses? And am I doing it right enough? Am I profitable enough to, to make a big case out of that? Or is it really the wrong plan for me? And actually I should get acquired. I should sell to, you know, be a TI media and sell to someone like Future. And yeah. that's, that's, that was the right plan for them. And um, hopefully all of those people found good homes within that business. It's a great business, by the way. And yet you see that consolidation. It doesn't, certainly isn't good for people like me because that's, you know, one less contract I get to sign <laughs> with somebody. But it's also, um, but also those larger organizations, um, you know, they've got more resources and, and uh, you know, for certain types of, of innovation, that's actually the right choice. I think for some publishers, actually the better choice is to effectively consolidate or outsource parts of their business. Mm -hmm. And you see, you see uh, Telegraph, for example, doing that by outsourcing um, their uh, their their print business to uh, to, um, uh, to the Daily Mail to the that the Trust, and so yeah. that's that's a good choice for them. I think others um, are actually outsourcing their, their, their ad operations and their technical side to, to companies. And that makes a lot of sense. That way they can reorient all of their, um, in fact, I work with one, uh, a, a Danish company that is doing that now in the UK where they'll go into a publisher, take that um, and, and take over the, the operations in the tech stack. So they don't have to manage, so the publishers won't have to manage that anymore. And they can, invest their resources into creating better content, aggregating a better audience, selling on, building their brand with clients and with their audience. That's really where they're gonna be building better equity and frankly, you know, uh, I, think, I think growing their business. It's not really in the massive amount of tech debt and, uh, and, and trying to be the best operations uh, team. That's not something that they need. So by all means, outsource that to someone else. Yeah, and what do you make of things like the Ozone Project? Ozone Project is amazing. It's an amazing group of people. It's a great concept. Um, and, you know, they're, they're right there at the right time. They've got the confidence of their, of their publishers. Um, and, you know, Danny is, is a genius. And, and, and everyone is, is, is um, and Damon and the entire team, Dora, in fact, everybody's name starts with a D. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think the Ozone Project is doing absolutely the right thing um, and, and achieving scale, where, which is, again, what the buyers are looking for. They want an easy, they want their lives to be easy. They want to be able to target the best audiences at scale and, and target great content. And so Ozone helps them to do that. And you see similar efforts happening across Europe and France and uh, Spain, other markets that are doing that too. Um, I would just hope that 
the publishers that are involved also are thinking about, right, let's say I outsource um, the kind of the display sales or other kind of maybe the data portion of my business to Ozone or other companies. What am I doing with those resources? How do I, what's my vision for the future for my brand, for my audience, for my content, for my editors? Where, where am I going to take that? Because I think that that's the kind of innovation and creativity that, um, that's going to drive the whole industry forward. How many of the challenges are kind of just every, every, every country, every region publishes versus very specific like niche local challenges in, let's say, the Nordics or Spain? Yeah, how, yeah, how, how, how different is the uh, impact on publishers' businesses sort of around, around the world? It's an interesting question because every, you know, the U.S. market being the the largest market, I mean, it's it's what it's half of the global media market is is in yeah. the U.S. So you don't ever have to leave the U.S. to create a really massive business. And so you've you've got all the you know, all these customers there. You can innovate. All the great tech talent is there. There's all the investment, right? So it's a great place to be. But every time you move into another degree smaller in terms of a country, you're dealing with um, local markets where people have different levels of, um, uh, of investment and different levels of customers. And, and so if you're building a business in a small market, most of the time you're building for the customers that are there in the first instance. Sometimes they can be very dominant. They're usually quite dominant players. If you're in Norway, you're going to deal with Shipstead or Media. That's kind of, those are the publishers, right? Yeah. And once you've done that, then you've got to find how do you know whether you've done a good job creating a product or a service that would play in the UK or in a larger market or in a set of markets. So it then makes you then have to um, find a way to enter those markets, test the markets um, without actually um, investing too much because again, you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of resources in those smaller markets to make those leaps going up in terms of market size is a lot harder than going down. So the US, you know, their, their challenge in looking at Europe is, well, it's Europe. Actually, it's not Europe. It's, you know, 20 some odd different markets. Um, and each one needs their own person and needs their own, has their own little ecosystem. And it starts to become uh, really annoying for them. And so they look at it and say, that's not right. That's, that's just not, not a good use of my resources. So, um, so those smaller markets moving up, you really need that ability, what I do and other people like me, it's kind of being able to test out those markets. I can look at a new product coming out of a different market and say, yes, that is a problem that I know that customers in the US or in the UK or in, or in France or Germany, I know that they need that. Um, and I know who I'll go talk to, right, in order to, to get the, that, uh, kind of test that out in the market. Um, but that that's not that's not easy to do if you're coming from the smaller market. So it's a combination of investment. I would say also there's a, a level of facility with the English language um, that the larger the larger markets uh, from a media perspective are speaking English in the UK uh, is the I, you know it's double the next largest media market in Europe. So so you'd be thinking right how do I enter that market? It's good to have some facility with, with, with English in order to make that leap. Um, companies in the Nordics have, you know, often have that. Um, but also there's a level of conservatism. I mean, I would look at, in the US, it used to be that you could get, uh, you could get a VC to pay attention with you know, five slides and, and a dream, right? Um, now, in the, in, in the UK, you need to have a working business. You need to have demonstrated product market fit. You need to have revenues. 
um, before you can get you know real investment. And then if you look yeah. in Europe, you actually need to be profitable <laughs> before anybody. Well, yeah. Then you're like, well, why do I need you? You know, so so I think you know there's a much much greater conservatism in Europe, and probably rightly so, because there's just not as many success stories of making those leaps into the bigger markets. It was like there's good appetite for for funding. There's certainly the money available. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a lot of good businesses, and frankly, there've always have been some good businesses. Um, but funding is easier to come by now. I think having exits is you know one way that 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 happens. It actually frees up capital for the VCs who had invested in those companies. Once they get that money back and hopefully more, they now have some more money. That money's got to find investments. They got to go again and they'll go again at smaller levels. You know, if you've sold one company for a hundred million, then well now I'm going to, I can invest in a million in a hundred companies. And, and so there's a lot of, um, and so they just need to, they want to make smart investments. They want to make, um, and they got to find that out. So it also requires people to get out there and, you know, hustle a bit, which is good fun. And um, do you think it's harder to pitch a VC over 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 over, um, over Zoom versus in the room? What do you think in terms of today's world for for doing those pitch? And indeed, indeed, the pitches you and the connections you're having at the moment. How are you how are you finding that remote versus in person? I, I think it's easier, honestly. I think in the end, VCs don't have much time. Nobody's got much time. But in this in this completely remote working world, everybody has actually more time. Nobody is. You know, you don't have VCs jetting around the world, spend too much time on airplanes. Um, they're spending no time on airplanes. They're at home or, or, or they're in the, their isolated office. There's more time to listen to new things. I think that's been actually really great. Um, at the same time, it's probably harder if you don't have the network to be able to reach out to them and have the trust to get yeah. the meeting in the first place. So the people who've done it before are much more likely to be able to do it again. Um, and, and uh, you know, but. To some degree, that's always the nature of the game, but it's even more so now because uh, it, it's it's harder to um, it's harder to know who to trust. I think, you know, if you're thinking about you're going to put three million into something, you kind of want to meet that person. You want to look them in the eye, right? And you want to see, oh, yes, you're the person who's going to get this done for me, or no, you're not. So, uh, so I think that that's a bit of a drag if you haven't met him before. But the future will be, you know, hopefully a healthy mix of the two and the right mix of the two. And I, I think unnecessary travel will be a thing of the past, just purely because most people realise a lot of the travel we did was was kind of fairly fairly unnecessary. One last thing before we before we um, come to a close, you, you, you created Women Present because you saw um, there was a real need uh, to, or there was an issue to be solved in terms of. Um, women having more access to panel slots, actually the uh, host of events having access to, you know, to, to all the great uh, female speakers out there. What, what do you think are the next uh, issues that need to be solved around diversity for organisations to really encourage um, yeah, better creativity, better growth? Yeah, what, 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 are the, what, what, what are the challenges and any practical advice on what companies can do and the industry can collectively do to, to improve that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's it's a, still a problem for for uh, at, at events, increasing diversity on panels um, and, uh, and, and speaking opportunities. I would have said it was easier with the pandemic because uh, frankly, they're, you know, with everything remote, it's easier than ever to get uh, 
talented, qualified, you know, female speakers um, on your panel because everybody has more time, and um, and you don't have as much to to juggle or to balance. Then it's all the more weird when you come across just like we did a couple of couple of weeks ago, where there's a, a five person panel and you're just thinking, God, really, really, in Women's History Month, this is what's happening. So you know, there's obviously a lot that needs to happen. Um, I will say that um, it is, as John Amici, the, the psychologist and former NBA star uh, said just today, he said, uh, you know, equality is not a spectator sport. This is, this is not something where you sit back and you think I am, I am anti-racist or I am anti-sexist. You actually have to say and do things. Um, and so I think this is about individuals and, and anything that you, any action that you are suggesting people take actually can be linked to metrics. You can say to yourself, what did I do today? What did I do today to actually further this cause? And if I didn't actually do anything, if I just thought about it or I read some tweets, you didn't, then you didn't do anything. Um, and that, and then actually you don't have to do everything all at once. There is a, uh, there is, there's this kind of expectation that, you know, when you think about, when you think about um, uh, male violence against women, which is, far too prevalent. And in fact, it is most of the violence by far against women. And, and you think about it, actually men don't wake up uh, or, or get born and want to instantly hurt other people and hurt women. It happens over time. They work themselves up to it. Actually, the reverse, I believe, is true. And that people work themselves up to being um, committed anti-racist and, and, and anti-sexist. I think you... Um, you, you absolutely can take small steps and you speak out when you see it happening and you speak out for women and, and people of color that, um, that maybe they aren't, they're not your friends, but you see it happening and you can speak up for them. And if you just do that once, you find that that's incredibly empowering and you'll do it again. Um, and so finding those moments where you can contribute just once in any environment to anyone. You see it happening on the bus, you see it happening on the street. Um, and then you think about the language that you're using and you take steps to change that language as well and the behaviors. Um, I think that's, that's, that's the start and, and organizations can actually measure that. I'm, I'm a committed person in, in, really, uh, in favor of, of quotas actually. I believe that if you don't set quotas at the beginning of a, of a funnel, of a sales funnel, then you actually are never going to reach the bottom of that funnel having achieved the targets that you want to. So if you don't have enough women or you don't have enough people of color in your in your interview process, well, you're not going to hire them. It's just not going to end up that way. And if you have too many um, old white guys like me in your on your board, um, well, then you have to replace them. If you're waiting for a guy like me to leave my role where I'm getting paid well and I have a huge amount of influence and, 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 and a great uh, podium to speak from, if you're waiting for me to give that up on my own, you're going to be waiting a long time. And maybe I would do it, and I have done it actually, but I don't know a lot of guys who would. So you actually have to say, right, we're going to change this and we're going to give it some time to, to, uh, to make that adjustment, but that adjustment's going to happen. And we're going to replace those people and we are going to uh, find the right people because they're out there. We know that they're out there. We see them. I mean, I know that you see them. I, I, they're certainly in my network. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's a point at which businesses actually just need to uh, 
find their guts and to make it happen because everybody can. Yeah, and I do agree that it has to be measurable because if you don't have the, uh, from a hiring point of view, first of all, you don't know how you're doing. Um, so you have to say, where are we now you know, against X, Y, Z, and the, um, yeah, whatever whatever you're measuring yourself versus. Then you have to say, where do we want to get to by X day? And then you have to say, how do we do that? So I think without without the measurables at the top of the funnel coming into the, the hiring process, be that externally or internally, it's, it, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard See, to make. What gets measured gets done. It, it's it's so, so so important. And, and, and the thing that really stands me, I remember when I went to... Um, a, a diversity media event which was set up um, a few years ago, it was really cool. And I just saw lots of panelists speaking and just saying the benefits of diversity by way of more voices, more challenge, more ideas, and just being reflective of your customers. And I thought for me, um, on a human level, it was made sense. And it really made sense to me from a business performance point of view, just that sense of the desire to hear from other people, to hear other views and to not work in an echo chamber. So for any leadership team in particular, um, I always relate things back to being in an SME because I've always worked in small companies. And I worked in a company that had 100 people and I set up a company which has got kind of 60 people in it and we hope to be much bigger. But the point I think we've done our worst work is where we've had like no change in the leadership team because you just have the same conversation and it's really, really, really boring. Um, well, that's so, that's when you that's what happens when you get white guys, all white guys on a panel. It starts sweet. to become it's it's actually pretty boring because everybody agrees with the, with each other and and they they kind of make little tweaks to the narrative, but it's all pretty much the same. That's it. That's that's it's it's not uh, it's it's not hard to to kind of um, to to make the change to kind of identify where the changes need to be. Um, it is um, and and I would just strongly suggest that people make make small changes. Yeah. And think about it every moment. Every, you know, it just it never really goes away, and that's fair because it never goes away. For if you're a person of color in a business environment, in a daily environment, um, or if you are a woman and walking down the street, there's this subtle um, and sometimes quite overt and quite scary um, um, sexual harassment and abuse. Yes. And, and you know, you can the stories are all around us. We can hear them at all times. They're they're they come and go, but they're all always there. So I think it's a matter of uh, yeah, it's it's a matter of listening and then uh, making making some some active changes. Yeah. Cool, great start. Well, thank you, Tom. I've had really good fun. We've um, I said it would be half an hour. We've not. We've been fifty minutes. So apologies for that. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've, I think we've got. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking about um, brand metric, the, the, the publisher world. It's fascinating seeing the um, disruption for publishers and also the opportunities for them. It's great to be uh, talking about ad tech in such a positive way and the industry to be buzzing so much, uh, both in terms of the deals that are happening and the new market entrance and actually that um, the future direction and the change and the opportunities that are available. Um, yeah, I just really appreciated you sharing your very unique um, position uh, across those different parts of the industry. So yeah, big, big thanks for doing so. Thanks, Ed. Really appreciate it. It's great. Yeah, take care. All the best. You too. Bye. Yeah, bye. Bye bye. A big thank you to Tom and Ed for this week's Life and Digital podcast episode. Join us in a couple of weeks' time for more. Um, any of the links that we discussed during the show will be linked via our website or in the show notes. 
We hope to see you next time for another episode of Life in Digital. <laughs>